the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We are at episode 326. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Dr. Michelle Dickinson. And I'm Luke Blinko from Electric Kiwi. Well, welcome along. Great to have you both here. Thank now, you. Thanks, Paul. Michelle, where do you fit into this world of science and technology? Just for the, for those who might not know who you are. Oh, if anyone's okay. listened before or you know hasn't been hiding under a rock, then they probably know who you are. But it's okay. always good to... So I am a nanotechnologist and I do a lot of work in the tech sector, both here and in the States. And I love tech, so I guess that's why I'm here. Thank you for coming along. And Luke? I'm the chief executive of Electric Kiwi, so we're a, a small startup looking to disrupt the electricity industry with, I guess, leveraging um, the plethora of data we get now. Cool, cool. Well, we'll look forward to, uh, to discussing that during the episode. Um, now, first, we've got a bunch of things to chat through this week. We want to talk about um, Apple and their move into the world of augmented reality and uh, opening up um, some sort of operation and a covert operation at this stage in Wellington. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Uber Eats that have launched uh, recently in New Zealand. We've got uh, Lyft, who there's some rumours they might be opening up in, uh, in New Zealand and Australia. They're, of course, an arch-rival to Uber. Uh, we're going to hear from Michelle about her experience with the Snap Spectacles. Uh, some thoughts on Super Mario Run arriving on Android. Um, Microsoft launching their new uh, online booking service. Definitely keen to hear a bit about Electric Kiwi. Um, and a little bit about the new podcast that uh, Michelle is hosting, Stupid Questions for Scientists. So that's sort of the highlights of what we'll be diving into. But let's get started by by chatting about Apple. And uh, there's the story that uh, that hit the news overnight around uh, the the comments uh, from Tim Tim Cook around augmented reality, how important that he sees augmented reality becoming and sort of a comparison there almost with the iPhone and with smartphones in terms of uh, how he sees that um, playing out. Um, this is this is pretty uh, pretty big news, I think, to um, to to hear that Apple have, have you know have got actual operations happening in New Zealand and um, you know not not just something boring. I mean, we know they've had salespeople, uh, Salesforce here in New Zealand, but uh, actually that they they seem to be out there um, gunning for uh, maybe some of the um, some of the top creative people in the country. Um, already, I think you know one or two people, uh, ex Weta, have been uh, named as uh, as having joined Apple's ranks and based in Wellington. Now we don't have too much facts, um, but uh, there certainly there certainly seem to be a few bits and pieces that are uh, that are that are lining up from uh, um, the the research that's been done in this recent news story. Michelle, what are your thoughts on this move from uh, Apple? I think it's a smart move. I think actually, you know, in this day and age of working remotely, there's no reason to not just base yourself in wherever the tech expertise is. We know that Wellington is a hot spot for, for all visual effects, including the stuff with augmented reality. We've got 8i, we've got Magic Leap, we've got Weta, we've got really smart people there. And also we've got things like the Global Impact Visa, which are attracting people to New Zealand who would like a lifestyle as well as a, a tech field job. 
um, that's going to make a difference. So I think it's exciting. I'm excited about augmented reality. I've been a HoloLens nut for a while. I'm fascinated with what it can bring and what it can do and what I've seen, some of the implications around the education space um, and learning um, without having to have hands-on experience with things. So um, yay, it's great for Wellington, surely. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a, I guess a milestone for, for our little country that we're attracting that sort of attention to the fantastic talent we've got, particularly in that, that Wellington region and that digital creative space, so more of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it is exciting and it does it does speak to the um, the creative talent that we have in New Zealand and, and that's been recognised, um, you know, around the world, whether it's the Oscars for, you know, all the incredible stuff that, uh, that is, you know, com- coming out in the films that... Um, um, you know, coming from Weta and Peter Jackson and so on, but it's um, it's it's a pretty impressive industry that we've got. That you know, going going back not not too many years ago, um, didn't exist at all. So um, yeah, let's let's uh, let's hope it works out well for uh, for for New Zealand. And I think you know, there's a little bit of waiting to see what's actually going on there. Obviously, there's a bit of speculation and the in the media um, and hopefully there'll be a bit more filled in on that and, and hopefully this actually becomes a um, you know a, a pretty important base for uh, for Apple and not not just one or two people working remotely and, and you know, I mean, Apple sadly has been in the news for negative reasons over this past week in New Zealand about not paying tax and, and things like that. And their claim is, well, it's because we don't have a management structure here in New Zealand and we're not that sort of, you know, location. And so wouldn't it be great if actually we had a real base that had a, you know, a bunch of hardware people and software people and, and it did contribute a bit to our tax system and it brought smart people here and it kept them here. I just think it has huge potential, I think, for, um, for New Zealanders. And perhaps on a broader level, just another um, indication that New Zealand's an attractive place to be right now in the world. Does does seem to be attracting a lot of a lot of attention, and certainly you know in Asia last week, and uh, yeah, lots of people you talk to are saying saying great things about New Zealand, and you know, real interest in in coming and working in New Zealand and living living in New Zealand. Obviously, it's um, uh, it's a hot topic now. Uber Eats, we, we chatted about Uber Eats, I think it was probably hmm, um, mid to late last year when I first tried out Uber Eats service in, I tried it in Canada and maybe in the US as well, but they've uh, launched here in New Zealand and it does seem to be quite a, uh, a natural uh, progression for Uber once they, they've got established in a market that they then build some of their other uh, other broader services out rather than just offering their Uber X um, you know, uh, uh, taxi alternative, um, and they're, they're here. They seem to be focusing on really very much central Auckland at this stage. So I, d- I haven't actually looked in detail at how broad their delivery areas are in other parts of the world, but uh, um, they they ac- they actually accidentally let slip that map uh, a couple of weeks ago. I fired up the Uber Eats app to see if they were about to launch, you know, if they were launched or or not. Um, yeah, maybe two or three weeks ago, and it, it came up with uh, an error, but it also revealed this this map of where the delivery area was going to be. So I'm not sure if that was quite intentional or maybe that's their way of getting people excited, but. Um, it's, um, we tried it yesterday anyway. I wasn't able to try it at home because I now live outside of the delivery area, but we tried it here in the office and ordered um, 
uh, we order 10, uh, 10 pair, 20 soft tacos for the team at the office um, and a couple of other couple of other bits and boy it was quick it was really really good service worked well um, yeah it just opens up so many more eating options if you're you know reasonably central you want to be able to um, you know get a meal easily and you're not in a position to go out and get it I mean it would have taken us a lot of a lot of time to organize a meal like that normally and um, you know a few clicks on the app and um, done the only thing I forgot to do was apparently I didn't choose the salsa because um, that's important. It is. Well, it's important when you're ordering Mexican, right? So, um, so, but of course, you know, the app has all your details. So, just like if you're getting picked up by an Uber driver and he's waiting outside for you, um, they've got your number and they just gave me a quick call and said, "Hey, mm. you, you know, you placed an order, um, and you left this off. What, you know, what would you like? We've got a few choices here, and um, you know, I told them we go with medium and." Um, Away we went, and the order was there, and probably, probably it seemed like about ten minutes early uh, than their their prediction. So it was it was very fast. Um, I, you know, I'd say um, yeah, roughly roughly thirty minutes. So it was um, it's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I'm lucky enough that I do live in Central Auckland, so now my I've used Uber Eats more than once this week. Um, but it was great because I, I was at an event. They didn't feed you. You get home, you're tired. It's ten o'clock. The last thing you want to do is cook. And I thought, oh, I've got these because they give you three free Uber Eat vouchers to try it out. So I was like, well, it's going to be free delivery. And I tried from a restaurant that I've never even heard of before, but it was the type of food I was looking for. So it opens up opportunities for restaurants that don't have the capability for a delivery service or don't want to manage that to do. That and then also, I was at a restaurant in Ponsonby around um, central Auckland the other day, and I was eating outside. It was just a cheap Mexican place, and an Uber Eats cyclist came up, and he came up, a young kid, probably nineteen or twenty, and he came to pick up his delivery. In, and I just said, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Oh, I'm the Uber Eats guy." And I said, "But you're on a bicycle," and you could see he had all these little good gadgets on his bicycle, his push bike. He's like, "This is great money for me. I don't have to pay for fuel. Everything's local. I'm only sort of cycling up and down the hill." Um, and people can still track him on the app because he's got his mobile phone on his app. And I just thought it's an interesting model to be able to cycle around, not really have any outgoings. You've got a spare couple of hours as a student, got some legs you want to power around. Good exercise. Um, so yeah. it seems to be a bit of a better deal than it is for the Uber cab drivers um, who seem to not be making that much of a margin because they've got still all their expenses on top of that. Mm. And and parking around the CBD around meal times is probably at a premium, so... Not as good for the full vehicle. Yeah, if yeah. they've got to stop and go and go into the restaurant to pick up the meal. Yeah, I think when I tried it in um, to- Toronto, there was yeah, it was a cyclist that came into the delivery in that case as well. Um, there, they had some sort of express meals, which I don't think I've noticed for Auckland, which were meals that I that they can uh, when you're within a certain very central radius that they can just go and pick up. They're ready, they're pre-prepared, so there isn't any cooking time. So you can get a delivery in something like 10 minutes um, for certain items as well. So I thought that was um, that, that was quite I wonder a, whether the model would evolve to more scooters and bikes for that Uber Eats. Because mm. I had an insight today, someone came to a meeting at the office and they just got the Uber um, to the office and they hopped out and said, oh, I just had this Uber experience and... Um, the Uber driver had just done an Uber Eats delivery, so I was left with these beautiful smells and I haven't had lunch yet. <laughs> so there's that kind of piece of the inventory management that they're going to have to manage as well. 
And for those of you who are busy, what if you combine the two so I can get into my Uber that already has my has food, food in waiting. it? And while I'm sitting in traffic, yeah, eat. I'm all good with that. There's a, there's an idea. Yeah, that could, that that could be handy. Um, so yeah, it's it's good to see that it's here. Um, there are some downsides. Of course, there have been other players within. Um, yeah, and Uber Eats, I think at this stage, is just in Central. I don't think it's anywhere else in the country. Um, but if you're in other areas, you might be relying on some of the other food delivery services. But I think, yeah, this is really going to hurt those, those local companies that have been doing it. They don't have the scale and they're just doing food deliveries and they're not lucky to have all these vehicles out on the road already anyway. Um, but on the positive side, yeah, the restaurant that I think it was Mad Mex in um, Ponsonby, if I remember right, uh, yesterday, you know, they got a whatever it was, $150 order off us uh, that they that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, I guess there's, I mean, we would have had to eat, so you know, somebody else would have missed out somewhere. But um, uh, maybe it was you know staff lunches that um, you know didn't didn't get consumed because we tried our Uber Eats. But and I wonder what the impact's going to be as those um, restaurants have to manage. Potentially an increase in demand to balance against what the in the in dining experiences and managing those challenges is going to be interesting as well. And one thing I haven't looked into is exactly how Uber's model is. So they charge six dollars for the delivery that looked like a sort of a fixed cost of five dollars ninety five or something. Um, but I don't know whether they're whether they're eating in. Eating in—that's probably the wrong word—to <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, heavily into the, into the profits of um, you know of these restaurants. You'd imagine if they're taking if they were taking you know twenty percent off top, um, that would probably actually be the profit that would normally be be there uh, on an order. So um, yeah, or maybe the restaurants will start uh, doing some congestion charging. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, you if you order when you're hungriest, you probably find lots of other people are hungry as yeah. well. Yeah, um, meal times. So yeah, kind of kind of curious, um, but it's really the world we're in, right? Things are getting disrupted, and um, in most cases, they're they're pretty good for us from certainly from a consumer perspective. Um, although there's usually somebody that's getting disrupted along the way. Now, Lyft, Michelle, we were chatting uh, yesterday um, after recording your new podcast, <laughs> Stupid yes. Questions for Scientists. Thank you for the plug. Um, and there's, um, there's, been, there's been a bit of... Um, so it's dis- all rumours, I yeah. should say it's all rumours, but we were in an Uber the other day and the Uber driver was talking about how he was also becoming a Lyft Driver, so Lyft is one of the competitors to Uber that has been in the states for a while, um, and he said that apparently Lyft are coming, and he's going to be a driver for both and have the app on both and pick up whichever. But that Lyft pays much better than Uber does. Now, this is only word of mouth from one driver who claims he's switching over, but I did some sort of trolling through some stuff, and it seems like a couple of drivers in Sydney too have sort of put their feelers out saying we've been approached by Lyft, we've been told they're moving to Sydney um, in the next couple of months um so it looks like lyft are going to start to do some international expanding and try and take uber on um for their money especially because there's this, been this big you know delete uber hashtag been going around about some of the politics within the uber 
um, members of staff on what's going on there and some of their code of ethics or perhaps lack of code of ethics within their system. And so it, it might be interesting to see that in New Zealand to have a bit of a choice around how you use that app. And I'll be honest, it's not just Lyft. I've been, Blue Bubble have really surprised me. The taxi companies are now coming out with new software, new apps to compete with, with Uber. And I think that's pretty cool that they've been able to do that. And many times when Uber is surging, I've gone to the Blue Bubble app and I've ordered a taxi instead and it's cost me less. So having choice as a consumer is um, is only a good thing, I think. Yeah, it is. It is handy having the, having those options. Um, so you're finding that that blue bubble has actually worked reasonably well because what I've found in the past is most of the other alternatives in New Zealand have been somewhat disappointing. I, um, in why, a number of and ways. I, I so I stuck with Blue Bubble because I used that app once and I really liked it and it was very Uber esque and I could see whether you know it told me if somebody was coming it told me where they were it was giving me the updates and I had an idea how much it was going to cost now there may be I'm not promoting them they're just the ones that I've used recently um, but it was nice to have an option because. Uber was surging 2.9 times, and I was just like, oh, there's got to be another way. And there was, and I actually took a blue bubble. Yeah, that can be um, can be somewhat annoying when you've worked out. I had a, a journey um, last year. I was somewhere in the U.S. I think it was last year. And um, I prearranged with an Uber driver for him to take me to the airport. We had a good chat on the, on the journey in. He's like, oh, you're going to be going back out to the airport? I said, yeah. And um, so I thought, oh, yeah, it's going to be whatever it was. Maybe it was $50 or something for the journey. Um, and then it was on surge pricing, so it was like, mm, it's going to be $150, mm-hmm. mate. Um, hmm, I could just catch a cab for now about half that price. Um, so, yeah, that became, became, became a little bit awkward. Uh, yeah. So, so having choice is good. Yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting how the... New Zealand's market size accommodates another player that potentially fragments, I guess, the user experience onto different platforms. So you've got to go through potentially a couple to identify the fastest, easiest, cheapest ride. So there's kind of that piece too that we're a small market and we're going to fragment a little bit more. But over time, there may be consolidation again. Well, that's where I've always thought that the the taxi companies should be joining up and not just on a local basis, but... You know, on a on a global basis, there should be a player that sort yeah, of you know that consolidates tie, the rest ties, or something, ties yeah. them together. Yeah. Um, and there's a there's a little bit of that with you know Uber in some markets has a you know you've got a taxi option, um, and yeah, some of the other players have have similar sorts of things that that does cater to that. But then you know it's it's those companies. It's um, you know not the taxi companies that are doing it. So, yeah, maybe a little bit of a lost opportunity. Um, so, yeah, also on the um, Uber front, they've lost a couple of key people. Um, their uh, recently joined president, um, Jeff Jones, is uh, is exiting, and he's uh, mentioned uh, differences over beliefs and approach to leadership. So this is just another... Um, Negative for uh, for Uber at the moment. So yes, certainly if we uh, if we see launch starting to uh, land in in other markets other than US, which has been you know been very much their their focus, um, I think their their timing would be pretty good actually um, with what's going on with Uber at the moment. Um, now, Snap Spectacles. Michelle, you tried these out the other day. I saw you, uh, I think, tweeting about these or uh, putting them on Facebook. I've sort of 
wondered a few times, look, should I order some of these and 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 try them out? Um, and I've I've held back to now. So I'm very interested in your opinion whether when I'm in the states this week, whether I should be making sure I get my hands on some snap spectacles. Or um, or whether it's just all hype. Well, you should because the black market right now for New Zealanders trying to buy them is huge. They're really <laughs> difficult to get over here, so there's been a delay in the shipping. So everybody I know who's everybody who saw my photo was like, "Where did you get those? We've been trying really hard." And so there's a lot of Kiwis who are still desperate to buy a pair, and they have a great price point in the US. I think they're 129 dollars, so they're pretty cheap. They look like a pair of goofy spectacles that have got little cameras on the side. They have a really nice form factor. I was surprised with how light they were. Having tried Google Glass previously, they were heavy and they had that little bulkhead on the end and um, they're really easy to wear. Um, simple user design, just a little push button to take video or um, a photo and it can take up to 30 seconds at a time with three separate 10 second pushes. Um, and then it doesn't interface your, with your phone until you need to download the stuff off it via Bluetooth. It's got a two hour battery life. It's a little magnetic charger. Super fun. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to say this politely. If you're going to wear them yourself, I'm just going to say they're, they're made for the Snapchat audience, which is your young millennials who like brightly colored, quite garish, plastic-looking glasses. Um, you definitely know they're Snapchat glasses when you look at them. They have a nice LED filter so that you know um, if somebody is filming you. So that's quite a good privacy feature. Although so I've, I have noticed, because that's a little circle around the, the lens, yeah. right? Yeah. So you can go on eBay and buy little stickers that will that will yeah. block those out as well. Already. Already <laughs> they're inventing yeah. things. But I thought that was a nice feature from, from Snap to actually talk about privacy and filming people without them knowing and to have that feature. Um, and... They're fun. They're goofy. I jumped around with them on. They didn't fall off my head. So they'd be good for, you know, jumping on a trampoline or something. They're pretty fun. I think if you're an avid Snapchat user, Snap, sorry, I should correct myself. If you're an avid Snap user, you would love them. If you're not, you would hate them and you'd see them as pointless. So they're not designed for people like us, I think. They're designed for your over-snapping millennials who want big funny glasses and want to video literally everything in their life and put a filter on them. You can't put filters directly on the Snap glass glasses content, Snap Snapchat's content, and um, like you can with the phone content, so they haven't got some of those added features that, that Snap users like. But for things on the go, it's goofy. You don't need to carry your phone with you. You can record stuff and then download them later. So they, they are focused focused on uh, Snap Snapchat <laughs> users, right? So you can't use them with anything else, although you can download the, the video content and photos back to your phone normal yep. sort of manner right so yep. yeah and just via bluetooth it's pretty easy and you know they're not great resolution but they're plenty for what you need on on that interface they're fun and it's nice to see a form factor that's actually usable and wearable you can't however wear glasses underneath them so if you do have to wear spectacles for anything else you can't wear these on top so they didn't make much space for those with any sort of visual impairment but i don't think they thought about that they're 129 dollars. they're just for fun mm. your sort of thing Luke? No, not, I'm probably not in the target market, but I'm sure I will get some requests at home for some of those before the year's out. <laughs> I guess the bit I wonder is, you know, for, for those millennials now, what's the time when they don't have their phone? So, yeah, how does that application play? Yeah, well, I guess there's, um, yeah, some, there'll be some interesting use cases and, and I guess it's the fact that they see what you see, right, because mm. they're, they're attached attached um to your head basically so um yeah it's interesting and um i'm just curious 
Any thoughts on Snap's IPO recently? They've listed themselves on the um, on the stock exchange uh, in the US just in the just in the last uh, few weeks, and I noticed they've they've got a pretty uh, pretty strong uh, valuation. They bounced up, uh, then they bounced down again, uh, as these things always do. Fair fair bit of um, movement, but. Um, I think yeah. Last time I looked, what were they? They at um, many many billions of dollars anyway. I think twenty something like twenty six uh, billion uh, US. Any thoughts on whether whether this makes any sense, Michelle? Is this the sort of company you would be uh, you'd be spending your money to buy some shares? Do you think? Well, I should have done it before. No. Um, <laughs> I, I don't understand this valuation. I, I mean, I understand it's a very popular app. I see a lot of people using it. I don't see how they're going to get much revenue. You know, I mean, it's sort of like the Facebook ads question. Like, how do you create revenue from, from something that is a disposable type of app? The whole point of Snap is that you're throwing things away and not keeping them. Um, I think adding hardware is interesting. As we all know, hardware increases costs a lot, you know, and you've got a lot of things to think about when you're developing hardware as a software company. So I think they may have some interesting challenges around becoming a hardware company. But but then you look at, you know, all the big companies are now doing hardware. We've got Facebook looking at um, glasses and other things. So it's an interesting valuation. I obviously don't understand finances enough to understand why they came in so high, but it, you know, it, it happened. I think I understand finances reasonably well, but I don't understand why it came in so high. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's um, it's one I'm not convinced about, but um, I've probably had, I've probably made similar similar commentary uh, around you know Facebook early on, um, you know even even Google. So um, yeah, there's. Um, I think there's 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 still a there's still a, still a um, a fair bit to to learn to know where all of these companies are, are going, and you know I think uh, a lot of people in terms of social media users who are really uh, into say Twitter would have thought, hey, Twitter's going to do really well, and you know Twitter versus Snap and you know Facebook, they you know they, they really have uh, they really have struggled. Um, so, and, I, and I love Twitter. Yeah. I wish it would do better. Yeah. I want to just go in and shake them all up and be like, "You just need a search engine function. You just need a few things." And, uh, anyway, I would love to. I would love to take over Twitter and just be like, "These are just the things you can monetize this and go over here." But I don't. So I'll keep using it. I hope it stays alive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, inter- interesting times in the world of um, in social media. Um, on that front, I'm going to be at Social Media Marketing World in um, San Diego this week, so no doubt we'll maybe gain a, an insight or two into um, people's thoughts on these things. Now, Michelle, um, you're a bit of a fan of Super Mario Run. <laughs> I know. This is big news. Paul said, <laughs> what news do you have coming in, Michelle? And I said, Super Mario Run is going to be available on Android. Now, I've been playing it on the iPhone for a couple of months now, and I you know, Super Mario, I'm surprised that they didn't launch it on both platforms at once. It's it's still strange to me that they choose to launch on one platform versus another. But any Super Mario fans out there, you're, it's it's the thing you could play on the bus. It's just the same. You know, it's just Super Mario. You're collecting coins and you're jumping over stuff. But it, it's a good, easy game to play. And it's now available on Android. And it just 
goof off time if you like playing games. So I, I want you to tell me how much time have you spent <laughs> playing, Michelle? Be honest here. No, I can't. No. <laughs> Because all the pe- all the deadlines I've missed, people were like, "This is why you're playing." Yeah, um, but it's a good, you know, when you just need a brain break. It's I- I'm all about little games that you can just have a break with, and and I love Super Mario, and it's nice to have a form factor on, on my form that's five minutes of not thinking and collecting coins and jumping off mushrooms and then going back to work. Doesn't need a very high, you know, high end piece of technology no. to run, does it? So no. uh, from that perspective, it's um, yeah, it's pretty easy to, for them to put on any mobile platform, right? Yeah, um, but interesting around, I think they got the financing model wrong. Um, it, it claims to be a free game, but then they charge you 10 bucks if you want to get any further on it. And I think 10 bucks is a lot for a game. I would pay 10 bucks on a game without realizing it though. So I think what I would have liked is pay, you know, 99 cents to get the app and then you get your power ups for a dollar. And I'd, I'd spend the 10 bucks over a period of time and feel invested in the game. I felt a bit ripped off that I had to pay 10 bucks up all at once, not knowing what it had to offer me. So I thought their model was interesting and not like some of the other games that I've played. Hmm. That, that pricing model might be targeted at children who have the appearance credit card attached to the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you could be uh, you could be dead right, and there's a certain age group that want to play it. Then it's like ten bucks. Okay, oh, I'm enjoying this now. I enjoyed the free one. I want to go further. So, um, but very different model than many of the other games that you know you you. So even Pokemon Go, you know, you just you want your power up or whatever it is. You would pay small a dollar or two at a time to to continue to play, but over the lifetime of your game playing, you were spending a hundred bucks on a game. Um, so interesting that they did a cut off as ten dollars versus trying to sort of weed money out of you secretly. Mm, mm. Um, now, uh, we've um, for a little while had um, had a number of ser- online services that are quite helpful if you're wanting to arrange meeting times with uh, with people and allows you to you know open up a view where people can pick a time to book you for a meeting, um, something that quite you know often can get get used. Um, you know, I imagine across a whole range of, of businesses. Uh, I know some podcasters use it for s- sort of time scheduling. Um, and uh, Microsoft have um, have launched their service called Microsoft Bookings that they announced last year. Um, so that's just come through. It's taken them a little while to um, uh, to get it out, but um, you know, basically gives people a, a web based interface where they can go in and um, um, you know make a, make an appointment through the. Um, um, that web web interface and then it's got other little bits and pieces such as sending automatic reminders to remind uh you know, the the attendee to come to the meeting now i suspect i got one of these reminders the other day i had a um had a meeting with a particular bank who shall um yeah i won't shame them this time um maybe i'll wait till uh uh, one of their staff next is on the podcast, um, and um, and I had an appointment, and I got the fifteen minute email in advance reminding me of my appointment. So I emailed back and said, "I'm just jumping in my Uber now. I'll be I'll be right there. Uh, arrived early for my meeting. Uh, went in to uh, to see the particular person in question. Um, they couldn't find him. They're like, "Oh, he, he he's just round the corner. He'll be here in a minute." And um, it really let the whole side down, especially the fact that it sent this reminder saying, hey, we're meeting at this time. And uh, so um, in that case, the technology was better than the, um, uh, the other party. 
um, it was interesting. And um, the particular chap at, uh, during the meeting sort of said, "Oh, um, yeah, no, I, I don't get any, in- I don't get any incentive for the bank on signing new business." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I can tell that." <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, uh, a little diversion there, but it, it um, feels almost overdue if I think of it in the terms of the the hairdresser or the beauty spa or the dentist that is, yep. you know sell your shares in A4 diaries now if that's kind of what the the predecessor of this has been yeah and we're only getting now to a situation where we can leverage that technology to that feels really really late yeah 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 well and Microsoft bought um, they bought a calendaring app I think it's called Sunrise if I remember uh, correctly that that had some smart uh, booking stuff and I didn't use it during the the sort of pre phase um, when you know when it was the original product and I think they've taken some of that capability and built it into their Outlook mobile app but I think they had some of that that stuff um, you know quite quite early on um, associated with it so it's taken them a little while to catch up but um, yeah, you know, they do get there eventually, and some things I guess they're iterating on a, a bit faster than others. Uh, now, what else have we got going on? Well, I'd like to hear a little bit about Electric Kiwi, Luke. Oh, always happy since, to talk since, about Electric since, Kiwi, since Paul. Um, yeah. I've been trying out the service over the last um, couple of months, and um, well, it's fair to say the lights haven't gone out. So um, for me, that's probably the most Im- important thing that there hasn't been a, an issue, although. You know, realistically, if the lights had gone out, um, well, actually, the lights did go out, but that wouldn't have been anything to do with you now that now that we think about it. So, where where does Electric Kiwi fit into the scheme of things, and why do you exist? Why why have we got Electric Kiwi? Cool. Um, look, yeah, we're a, I mentioned earlier a startup electricity retailer, and we're really born of the opportunity that's presented that's almost unique in New Zealand, and that we're a, a reasonably evolved market. Uh, especially so in electricity. We've been deregulated for longer than most countries. We've got a pretty robust, um, I guess, wholesale market and structures around that. Um, we've got smart meters deployed probably to a higher penetration than than anywhere else in the world. What is the deployment of, of smart meters? It's about 75% of households at the moment. But mm. I guess for us, we can only offer our proposition to customers that have smart meters so that's a constant frustration for us that there's 25% of New Zealand's population who are missing out on the opportunity to experience the, the benefits of you know increased competition innovation access to data because really the you know, I guess the the core tenet of this is a lot more data means we can we can provide a much much better experience for consumers are there particular parts of the country that are much better serviced with um, smart meters. I mean, they seem to be incredibly common in Auckland and yeah. some other parts of the country. And then there's then the segments where um, they seem to be a bit slower. So, uh, who are the who are the companies that have that have pushed it, and who are the companies that are slowing it? There's down? definitely Tell a significant <laughs> laggard, um, which is a retailer based in Tauranga, starting with T. Um, <laughs> won't name them. So. Uh, all of the so big come, players have really embraced the technology, right? Ex- except um, that one you know, outlier amongst the significant players. So has, and it that's the, become, has the retailer been the key, the yeah, key so, player that has done this? Because yes. it's a retailer that used to send somebody, well, still does in some places, yeah, and under the send someone around rules, to read the, the meter. The retailer gets to, to decide on the, you know, effectively the metering arrangements for a site. So 
you know, there's potentially the opportunity for a retailer to rip out the meat that's there every time they win a customer. But we've we've kind of grown up a bit from doing that. But certainly, there's pockets in the country that aren't getting smart meters. So if the average penetration across the country is 75%, um, but Auckland's probably well into the 90s, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin are probably similar. Yes. There's big chunks in New Zealand that are missing out. Um, and they tend to overlay with old incumbencies of a, of a retailer who's not replacing smart meters. And it's become an opportunity probably for less competition on their old incumbencies. So last mover advantage, I call that. <laughs> and so what would, what would stop you rolling out um, smart meters? Because it's an expensive proposition to make the change, isn't it? Look, the, the benefits certainly from in our proposition of smart meters you know, easily outweigh the costs of deploying the technology. It's got a decent life. Um, and we don't actually invest in the in the technologies. The metering companies will go out and deploy the meter. The challenge we've got under the rules is we're only um, certified to trade on a smart meter site. Right, um, so you couldn't take on a customer. So we can't change the meter before they're our customer, and they can't be our customer until they've got a smart meter. So we're kind of we're out of that game. Right, right. Um, but having said that, you know, we're at 9,000 customers. We're growing quite rapidly we're about you know borderline about a thousand customers a month of growth and we've sustained that for, for quite a period and I'd expect us to sustain and probably accelerate that going forward um, 9,000 customers there's probably one and a half million households so there's still a bit of runway for us <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah. yeah yeah so what um, how are you how are you using data what's sort of unique about um, yeah, your model that you know you're you know, you're one of a number now that are that are, I yep. guess, uh, tackling, uh, you know, the the retailing of power in a somewhat yep. different manner than the, yeah. the traditional old school models that we we're used to. Um, yeah. What are the things that you're so doing? probably two key areas where we can leverage the data at this point in time, and this is just the beginning of the story. We'll continue to to innovate and disrupt, but the, the proposition as it is today, um, we're providing a really good value proposition for for consumers by um, measuring usage and getting better at actually buying and hedging our book in terms of the energy we buy. So we're, we're leveraging that data to do a better job of matching our purchases with what our, our ongoing um, customer's usage is going to be. So we've got a, an opportunity and an advantage in that space and then also being able to provide consumers with quite granular data every half hour, um, you know, updated every night. So customers can log on and see their usage down to the half hour and then sort of the last piece of that is we give every customer one hour free power every day off peak so in that hour if you're at my house where we've got you know myself my partner and four kids um when we turn everything on you know the the whole street dims <laughs> so we get um we get really good value out of that and that doesn't that doesn't require a significant change to our lifestyle um but at the same time it gives certainly my partner feels like for the first time, control over your electricity bill rather than it's just something that turns up in your pay. So actually getting some engagement around, hey, I can move my usage and actually benefit from this time-based measurement of electricity. So that's kind of the initial uses of data. And we've got quite a few ideas how we'll continue to optimise and evolve those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it seemed to me having a look that... Uh the the rates you know were were you know good good rates to start with then uh, i think you know upon signing up the window of time uh, where the the free hour was was set to sort of you know 12 to 1 p.m. 
which is one of those off-peak slots, and it varied from day to day in terms of what the um, you know what that meant for me in terms of a saving on the day. But I think usually between two and a half and five, five and a half percent, some you know somewhere um, in there. Um, but then you can obviously improve that significantly yeah. by by picking another time. I think you know four to nine pm is your is your peak, but you can basically choose any hour outside of that. Yep. Um, and if you know if it's say you know between nine and ten o'clock at night that you run your dryer or you know certain yeah. things. Um, then yeah, that um, that becomes pretty pretty. So yeah, pretty, our, our uh, customer base at the moment is on average saving about ten percent. Yeah, through that free hour of power. So yeah, it's certainly a significant number. And we've got examples of a yeah an older man down in Wellington who's closer to ninety percent. I think he might actually only run his fridge during the hour of power. So <laughs> you can go too far. Um, and when I analysed our own our usage at home, it sort of came to the conclusion that maybe Uber Eats is the answer because. Yeah, you know, if if we just stop eating at home, then most of our usage can be moved to that hour of power. Very, very interesting. What what about? And um, you know, I'm thinking of um, Keith, um, who was on the podcast recently talking about um, his new Tesla about to arrive, and I think he was uh, tweeting or on Facebook again today saying that it was at a delivery point. So no doubt that's about to arrive for him. Um, could you have could you have an issue where you know someone's got um, maybe they've got the uh, Tesla Powerwall and uh, they'll have an hour a day where they uh, draw loads of juice and charge up the batteries for their house and then run everything off? How would you feel about that? Well, yeah, <laughs> that they've, they've still only got an hour, so <laughs> we've got that um, up our sleeve. We, we've got a fair use policy that it's it's residential only, right? So yeah, I yeah. think. The configurations for those houses would have to change over time, but so you can't um, pull down the power for your neighbourhood and then sell it, sell it back to them off, off yeah, some we're, batteries. We're, we're not quite at that sort of arbitrage <laughs> stage, but look, you know, I think those are all challenges to the industry. It's what makes the electricity industry at the moment a fascinating place to be. Yeah. There's, you know, there's all sorts of disruption um, coming from all sorts of angles, and you know, the big guys are um, jumping all over the show trying to figure out, you know, what what the future is for for a big organisation in this space. And, you know, I think even if you look at the industry rhetoric over the last three or four years, it started out saying solar's a waste of time, we shouldn't even be talking about it, there's no rational reason for it. And they sort of forgot that consumers don't have to be rational. And, you know, at the time they were talking up electric vehicles, here we are today, there's 15,000 houses with solar and, and 2,700 electric vehicles. So, you know, a big lesson for the industry there that actually it's consumers that are going to make the choices. And, that's kind of our focus on data, making sure we really have deeper insights around what consumers want and are doing. That's kind of how we'll we'll sort of win that disruption space. Yeah, that's good. Now, um, New Zealand seems to be sort of ahead of a lot of countries in terms of what we're doing in the electricity market, in terms of the the wholesale retail structures and how it's um, you know the deregulated and uh, and then you know players like yourselves that are doing interesting things with the with the data do you see opportunities to take what you're doing here and move into other markets or or the 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 structures of how things operate in other markets make it too difficult or do you do you think you you know if you if you get something right here that that really grows in popularity you could transplant it oh absolutely we could yeah, yeah. um New Zealand and Australia are reasonably similar in okay. terms of market structures. Mm. Um, and then if you look at more or currently deregulating markets, 
Um, many of them have looked to New Zealand as a as a model, so you'll see more similarities. So Electric Kiwi's been really successful in terms of proving the concept around a naked retailer that doesn't have to own generation assets that can can buy electricity off a off a wholesale market, take a hedge position, and use data to serve customers well. You know that feels like something that's actually quite transplantable. Mm. And then you know one of the key um, organisational strengths is around software development. And we've got a really, really good system, which we think absolutely has um, the ability to, to be you know, not just where it is today, but to continue to evolve and absolutely be, be sold in multiple markets. So, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, that's yeah, one of the key initiatives going forward is to, to start to look beyond New Zealand and sort of why my role exists is I've, I've sort of stepped in to, to push on the New Zealand game and, and Julian's going to focus on, on outside of New Zealand. That's very exciting. And so, how how are you funded, and what's the ownership like um, at this stage? Mixed, it's mixed ownership. So the three founders, are shareholders, and another uh, third party, which is actually um, part of the reason for existence, is that the the, the other shareholder is a um, an energy trading fund who who have traded energy futures for some time, um, identified an opportunity to perhaps leverage that expertise vertically into into retailing um, and this has been a success to date from their point of view as Electric Kiwi so we've kind of I guess Electric Kiwi's proven the model for, for, for the sort of key shareholder that they'll look at alternative markets to then take the model so it's been a, a really good good story to date and yeah. still lots of runway yeah oh that's good that's good um, did you have any questions on that front, Michelle? No, but as a data numbers nerd, I'm super excited. Yeah, I'm not currently you, a customer, you, but you I I am obsessed with, I don't know why, my partner hates it, but I'll come home and I'll be like, you used the tumble tryer today. And he's like, how do you know? I'm like, I know. I know exactly when you're consuming more. And so I'm very excited about it because as a data nerd, I will start looking into it. And we just, yeah, Smart Meters was a pretty basic blunt instrument really into that measurement space going forward i kind of don't see the meter on the side of the house being how that will be measured Mm. in the future it'll be down to to appliance level and everything will be aggregated at some point there's Mm. just the the advance in technology from some sort of you know mechanical meter on the side of your house is sort of not where the future will be now on that that meter front, um, th- th- at the moment the meters sort of relay the data. Sort of, you know, you're a day or so behind, right, in terms of the data. Yeah. And also, it seems that most of the meters. Now, I could be wrong here, but from what I recall, are based on um, GPRS data connection, which is two G. Um, that's going to be a problem at some point in the future, isn't it? And and that. Uh, you know, we're not going to have any any two G mobile networks. It might be an opportunity, Paul, <laughs> rather than a problem, um, depending on whether you own those assets or not. Um, yeah, but at the moment, point. the I guess the the asset base in New Zealand is probably seventy percent or higher in that GPRS based technology, and then Auckland's actually um, got a, a mesh network where the meters talk to each other and build up their own sort of self-healing mesh. So that's less challenged by the GPRS because all you've got to update then is the 1 in 500 sites that's a takeout point. Right. So So is there any reason why they couldn't move those to updating on a much more frequent basis, do you think? Or have you heard any 
moves on that? Because I, when I look at it, I, I just think, why can't this be real time or, or at least, yeah. you know, an hour behind? Yeah. We, so we get the data between midnight and 4 a.m., depending on who the provider of the data is. So then we've got from sort of that 4 a.m. window onwards to try and present that to a customer and get it into our system. And, yeah, more, more frequent in, in real time, I think, aspirationally, absolutely. I think um, the current technology set that's out there, maybe, maybe not. Um, there, there's a few a few issues with the GPRS, whether they're in always on, those cards, so whether they're in always on or just burst mode, so you've got to wake them up to send, wake them up to send versus them always being open. And I think there'd probably be some maybe network issues or certainly cost issues for those meter providers if, if that went to an always on kind of mode but I think it's exactly the aspiration right everyone wants everything real time and yeah we'd be all over it if that came to came to pass yeah Good we stuff. just need IoT to catch up so that we can get all of our devices to turn on when mm. electricity is cheaper and it can just monitor all of that through that's what I need I just need my all my stuff to talk to itself and yeah get me the best deal thank you <laughs> It will. It will, right. <laughs> we, ju- we, just have, we just have to wait. All of the bits are almost there, you know. It's not quite together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I guess there is, there's, you know, certain companies have to do certain certain things to, um, to have it all, all line up. But, yeah, I think you're right. The, the, the technology in, in, you know, virtually every regard exists. It's, it's actually implementation yep. of it. And, you know, That's where the, te- the other, the non-metering technology disruption will drive advances in the metering space yeah the example you give right that so someone's got a tesla their their battery bank um they've probably got solar they might have something else on the roof as well whether it's a wind vane or who knows what but um none of that's going to be driven by engineers in wellington who are trying to design what's best for the network it's going to be just consumers deciding what's best for me in my home today and my family and that's Even if it doesn't add up financially, as you say, like in the case of solar in New yeah. Zealand, I mean, it's massive in Australia because it's a very different business business yeah. case with their climate. Um, it's you know, it's reasonably thin on the ground here, but even as you say, there's still reasonable numbers considering the... Yeah, um, solar is an interesting study for New Zealand. So our electricity um, profile, if you like, is winter evening peak is when our highest usage is, when certainly not our highest sunshine hours. And... Australia's highest usage is um, summer afternoon peak, which is, corresponds nicely with solar, um, and we've got lots of water and they don't generally. More recently, they seem to have a lot sometimes. But you know, there's those things as well that underpin. We've got 80-something uh, percent, depending on which year, 85% renewable coming down the power lines. So we're not trying to displace coal, whereas in Australia the, the grid supplied energy is coal based predominantly so a bunch of different drivers but you know that's kind of a rational view consumers will make decisions about their own choices and they might be around I actually just want some self-determination or whatever those things are Mm. it'll drive some potential social challenges for New Zealand though that the first people to get more off the grid will be the wealthiest and then the underlying cost of the existing infrastructure has to be distributed amongst the people who can potentially least afford it. So we do have some kind of overarching issues around that new technology and how we manage it, but, um, you know, it's not going to be a surprise. Yeah. 
Fascinating stuff. Um, it's, I mean, it's just good to see the see the innovation that's happening locally. Um, now to wrap up, I think Michelle, we should hear from you a little bit about the fun of launching your new podcast, "Stupid Questions for Scientists." It's been a little while coming, but it's we're been two years. We're, we're there now since we first talked about this idea of doing a science podcast. I don't know how you do this um, every week. It's a lot of work goes into podcasts. But it's fun. No, it's and boy, it was fun. the live show uh, last night. For those that are um, interested, have a look at the um, the Facebook page for uh, Stupid Questions Podcasts um, or our World Podcasts um, page, and you can actually see some of the live stream from last night. But it was a lot of fun. It was. Um, it was a lot of ridiculous. It was. Well, Di Henwood was there, and, and he's well known for um, Ridiculous. um, ridiculousness. Um, but he's also thoroughly entertaining and and a very smart cookie, um, which is why I've twisted his, his arm to come back on Tech Podcast again because it's been a little while. He's um, great on this show. He's such a nerd. He is. I love him to pieces. No, and he, he was great. So we, we launched the podcast yesterday with a live audience um, live record show, which is, you know, all the stresses you could possibly add in one go to a sort of first live show launch. Um, and we launched the first episode of our first podcast, Stupid Questions for Scientists, on Monday. What day is it today? I don't know what day it is. Anyway, Monday. Monday the 20th is when it came out, so you can listen to the first episode. That's Jeremy Corbett talking to Dr. Alex Taylor about what animal is the smartest animal on the animal kingdom? Is it humans? Um, and we debate what smartness even is in intelligence. And the one we did at the live launch was um, all about viruses and whether viruses are actually mass murderers or could they be trainable ninjas. Um, and the whole point of the show is it came from a as, a as a scientist who's out there in the public. People come up to me all the time and say, can I just ask you a stupid question? And it's never been a stupid question. It's always been an amazing question that's about something really insightful and they just didn't know where to go to find an answer. So it's basically all those questions that people have come up and said, can I just ask you? And I'm like, yeah, that's a great question. Let's find an expert who can answer that question. And let's pair them with a comedian who will ask some interesting questions around the subject and go down some big rabbit holes, um, as we have done, um, to create this fun educational comedy entertainment chaos show that is stupid questions for scientists so if you're a podcaster and you like to listen to podcasts please tune in we um yeah we, you will definitely go away learning something new um even if it's totally it, random it's a good balance of learning something and and being entertained and just laughing so, your head yeah. off being like did they yeah. just say that so thoroughly recommended so um stupidquestionsforscientists.com if you want to um, get on board and, and have a listen or just find it through your podcast player. It'll, it'll be appearing on there pretty quickly. Well, that's us for this episode. Those, thanks, everybody, for listening in. We'll catch you again next week. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.